Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. It's been some time, uh, June 1st, I think, was the last time we were in our study of Luke. We've been working through it for the last year and a half or so. Today we're up to Luke chapter 9, 51. We're in no hurry as we go through it. It's been a journey, and we're going to be talking about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 51 through 56, just a short passage, five verses here. But as you're turning it and you got that, let me ask you a question. What would you do if you knew you only had about a year or so of life left? How, How would it change your life? How would it change your priorities, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money? How would it change the way in sp- with, 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 the time, with who you spent your time with? What task would you want to finish? What type of legacy would you want to live if you knew that you just had a short time left? Do you think you would pursue more self-centered, bucket-style activities, which seems to be all the rage today, or would you spend it on more other-centered type activities? More time with your family and friends and loved ones. Now, this became very real for one man named Randy Posh, who is a professor of computer science. He was one of a group of professors who took part in a series, called, a series of lectures called The Last Lecture, which posed the age-old question... What would you say if you knew you were going to die and you had a chance to sum up everything that was most important to you? What was most remarkable about his lecture was that he had just received the news that he only had six months left to live due to pancreatic cancer. His lecture, Really Achieving Your your Childhood Dreams, would be wound up, watched over by 10 million people and also sold over 5 million copies of his book. Even today, his lecture is watched and enjoyed by people looking for hope, encouragement, and inspiration. He really faced his demise, his death, with dignity. In this next section of Luke, chapters 10 through 19, Luke is now going to record Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and his divine appointment at the cross. This section is unique to Luke's gospel. You won't find much here in the rest of the synoptic gospels other than just a few teachings that are found in Matthew and Mark. Jesus' focus here is on instructing his disciples in preparation for his ascension into heaven. In essence, Jesus is giving his last lectures to his disciples, knowing that his time is short. Just a little bit, maybe about a year or so left on his public earthly ministry. And as a matter of review, so let's catch up because it's been some time since we've been in Luke. Jesus had planted his base of operations at Galilee, at particular in the city of Capernaum, where he traveled around the many villages teaching and preaching. He had been ministering in that area for about 18 months or so. Luke has established the origin story of Jesus as we go through Luke, as the Son of God and as the Son of Man. Luke has recorded the testimony that Jesus is both 
truly God and truly divine and truly human and man. Sent by God as the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem his people from their sins. Lucas spent the first nine chapters, nine through chapter, uh, actually up to verse 50, uh, establishing the legitimacy of Jesus as the Messiah by recounting through eyewitness testimony accounts the authority that Jesus displayed through his teachings and through his miracles. And the purpose of Luke's writing, the purpose of that gospel, you might recall, was to give confidence to the Gentile readers at that time that Jesus was Messiah, the Savior, who was sent to redeem God's children from their sin. So with that, join with me as we read Luke chapter 19, whether it's through your, through your Bible. And again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. If you do not have one, we'd love to give you a copy of God's Word, or you can also join with us on the monitor. When we read here in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we read, When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and he went and he entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was not set, or not, was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Father, give us, uh, thank you for your word. Lord, it is sufficient alone for all things that pertain to life and godliness. For with it, we find our hope. We find our faith established and strength, strengthened. Father, I pray that you open up our minds and hearts, uh, limit the distractions. Father, either outside or inside our own minds and hearts. Lord, I pray that your spirit would have free reign. Let me speak words that are edifying. Let us know the difference between my mere opinions and your word. And Father, I pray most importantly that we would respond to the spirit's work. Thank you so much for Luke and those testimonies that he has. Encourage us today with your word. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to give you several observations. The first observation, these are very simple, involves Jesus as he resolves to begin his journey to Jerusalem. You know how I love to alliterate, so he's going to resolve here. So everything's going to start with an R as we go here. The first observation is Jesus resolves to begin his journey to Jerusalem where he will face head-on his destiny with the cross. He is not going to deny it. He's not going to delay it. He knows when that is, and now he's setting his face and he's heading toward this. Jesus had been preparing his disciples for that day by instructing them that soon Jesus would be rejected, betrayed, tortured, crucified, and then resurrected from the dead. They didn't understand any of this, but he had been preparing them for that. What we usually, though, don't consider that after the resurrection, Jesus would also be taken up as you see that he says Jesus drew near for him to be taken up he knew the days for him to be taken up were near he's talking there uh, where he would be taken up and seated at the right hand of God we read a little bit about that in our scripture reading this morning already and knowing that his time is short here on the earth uh, maybe just a little bit over a year left Jesus begins that journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem and he sends an advanced public relation team so to speak to acquire lodging and food and the other necessities that were required of not only him and his disciples, but typically a large group of people that would follow him along the road. 
his journey to Jerusalem is going to take him through Samaria. It's the shortest route. However, as we see in the second observation, not only does Jesus resolve to begin his journey, but we read that the Samaritans reject Jesus' overture to minister and to visit and teach among them. Now, to understand their harsh response, we need to understand the underlying current between the Samaritans and the Jews at that time. Many of you are familiar with these, but let me give them to you anyway. Theologian Daryl Bach writes that in the Jewish eyes, in their mind, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were ethnic traitors. They were bad guys. Samaritans had intermarried with other people in the religion or in the region. They even worshipped at a different site. They didn't worship at Jerusalem, but at Mount Gerizim. And many recognized only the Pentateuch as inspired, where the Jews would say, no, the, the Pentateuch, the, the, the writings of the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs. But they would just take the books of, of Moses. Traditionally, Jews and Samaritans were very hostile to each other in such a way that they would, the Jews would go way along out of their way to avoid any contact with them. So Jesus offered to reach out and to travel among them and to, and to, to teach and to, to minister among them is pretty exceptional. But they reject it. Pastor John MacArthur notes that the Samaritans were considered unclean by the Jews and were so hated that most Jewish travelers, as I said, traveled from Galilee to Judah, not, but took the, a longer route around to avoid him. It seems that Jesus, wanting to share his message to them, had decided to go right through Samaria, which would save days of travel. However, they rejected his message and his ministry. Mainly because, as we see in Luke or in John, as we go to the Samaritan wedding, we might re- recall it, the woman at the well that the woman says, Well, you worship at Jerusalem, but we worship over here. Jesus had a different view, a different mindset than them. This also demonstrates a common thread in Luke's gospel as it emerges as Jesus is going to face rejection from many, not only including the Samaritans, but also, as you might recall from our study in Matthew and Mark, his family who thought he was crazy. They thought Jesus had lost it. Some of his disciples would eventually reject him, many of them most likely, I think. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the political leaders, and again, the whole country as a whole, you and I know how this story ends. And this is showing a a thread that's finding its way through the Gospels. So instead of going through Samaria as he was wanting to in his trip to Jerusalem, he would take, all, it would take him along the border between Samaria and Galilee. You see here on a map here, it may be difficult to see, but you see in the red line, he starts from Capernaum and he heads towards Samaria. But as you can see here, that's probably the place, the village, where they said, no, nah, we, we don't want you here. You think differently. You teach differently. And so as you see, he has to go all the way across the Jordan and then down kind of through the wilderness and then back through. So that's the route as we go from chapter 9 to uh, chapter 10 through uh, chapter 19. That, that's mainly where Jesus is going to be. So just kind of give an idea as you're reading along with me and reading ahead. That's the area that Jesus is going through. The third observation comes when, Jesus, or when James and John react negatively. They react negatively. They're seeking retribution against those Samaritan villagers. They are called the sons of thunders. Remember, that's what Jesus called them in the, in the book, of Gospel of Mark. And they're, and they're ready to use their newfound power 
to obliterate this village. As you might recall, Jesus had given them power and authority to heal and to cast out demons. Now they went to try, now they want to try out that power, not in sharing the gospel and meeting the needs of the people, but in commendation, commendation of the people. This recalls two instances in the ministry of Elijah. Remember, we studied Elijah several years ago, several summers ago. Back in 1 Kings chapter 18, you might recall that Elijah called down fire on the altar. You might remember King Ahab and Queen Elizabeth, or Elizabeth, Jezebel. <laughs> Forgive me, Britain, I just offended a whole country. <laughs> but as we see, they, 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 they hated Elijah. They hated God. They, they were worshiping Baal. And it comes to, to that point, remember, they were, were Elijah then, 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 then uh, um, challenges them to a cosmic battle between the gods. Remember, you, you build your altar and put a sacrifice on it. I'll build mine. We'll call down fire from our gods to see who would do so. Which one would, and whoever does it, that is the true God. You recall the story. The prophets of Baal went around. No fire. They're praying. They're crying out. Elijah's kind of trash-talking to them. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep. They begin cutting themselves, bleeding themselves to show their commitment and their passion, but nothing. Then Elijah's turn comes, and he builds this big trench around it. Remember, he fills it all with water over it. So, so now the, not only is there water, but now there's water all over the sacrifice, the animal they're going to sacrifice, making it harder to, to light any natural way. And eventually we read the story that Elijah comes to pray. He says, Lord, if you are the Lord... In verse 28 of 1 Kings 18, we read, Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. A supernatural fire. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. That was probably in their mind. Hey, let's show these Samaritans who truly is God. Let's show them where worship truly is. It's not on their little mountain. It is at Jerusalem. Maybe thinking that if he called down fire, the rest of them would say, oh, you're, you're right, Jesus, please come through. You can almost see that. That might be something that we say, yeah, that, maybe that's a good thing. Another instance in where uh, that's demonstrating the power of God, but there is another one in which it's a, it's a condemnation. Again, uh, with, with um, uh, uh, Elijah, where Elijah calls down fire on the enemies of God twice. You might remember this story, maybe not. It's, it's not as familiar. It's found in 2 Kings. We see that the king is dying, and he calls to a foreign god, to, a, to an idol, and he says, go inquire of this god to see if I will be healed. And Elijah hears of it, and he says, wait a second, is there not a God in Israel? Is there not a prophet? Why are you seeking a prophet and a false God? He says, because you have done this, you will surely die. The king hears about it. He says, that's it, I'm, dying. I'm done with Elijah. This is the son of Ahab. He says, I'm done with this guy. I, I'm going to kill him. So he sends 50 men after Elijah. Elijah's sitting there kind of on a hill. He sees him coming, and he says, hey, fire, come down. Fire comes from heaven and kills those 50 men. The king, you think that would change his mind, says, oh, that's not, I'm going to send another 50. And again, happens again, Elijah says, 
fire come down and, and it comes and destroys those men. And then finally, the king again sends another 50. This time, the captain of the 50 says, hey, please don't. So Elijah then goes with them and shares with him. But he says, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are trying to inquire of Baal, Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? But what we see here is when they send those men, Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So in this case, he's saying, condemnation, if there is a God, then you're dead. You're dead. So this is kind of probably most likely in James and John's mind, the, the sons of thunder. They're going to demonstrate <coughs> excuse me, that Jesus is the Son of God and that the power of God reigns on them. And, and James and John are going to use that newfound power they have to condemn others. Aren't you glad we don't have that type of power? How many times have we done that? Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you've done what? You've heard of murder. Most likely, they were offended by the reaction of the Samaritans and their own prejudices. And they're reacting accordingly. They're acting like, really, you and I do many times. The fourth and last observation of this passage I want to make out before we get into the midst of it is Luke records Jesus' rebuke. Jesus' rebuke towards his disciples. For their anger, and instead, he offers grace. Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus said in that rebuke. Nor does he tell us what Jesus said to the people of that village. He simply tells us that Jesus turns and heads towards another village, refusing to take any type of retribution or acts against them. Now, those are those four observations, and they're very clear for us to see. Is this something just kind of extraordinary is coming? But as we come in, we think, now, now how does this Bible help you and I? In other words, how does this testimony of Jesus 2,000 years ago, this little uh, transitory passage that's taken us from one section to the next, how is this section profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness? How does this help me to be complete and equipped for good works? I'm glad you're asking that question because that's what I want to share with you this morning. Because as we, we come to this portion of Luke, we now see that Jesus is moving to a new phase of ministry as his public early earthly ministry is coming near to an end. Theologian Patrick Schreiner notes that the focus of this section, this chapter 10 through chapter 19, is really about the apprenticeship of the disciples. As Jesus shows his disciples, the gospel is for the oppressed, for the oppressed and how he is the savior of the world. It's about discipleship. It's about giving them his last lectures, knowing time is short. And so what is it that I want to pour into these people? You and I as parents ought to think of this. For we don't know how much time we have on our duty. And our goal as parents is to pour into our children, to pour into our spouses, to pour into others, that we may leave something of God with them. So that's what we're seeing here in this passage of Scripture. So as we go through it, we're going we're gonna to tackle that as our mindset as we go through these journeys of Jesus as he moves from village to village, from house to house, to area to area, that everything that is happening in this section is to teach his disciples. Luke has already demonstrated and already has given us 
uh, the legitimacy of Jesus and who he is. Now it's about the disciples and making sure they understand who Jesus is and what he's going to require of them. Just like our professor in the opening of this passage, Jesus is using the remaining time left to him to bolster and to build up his disciples' learning, preparing them for his crucifixion and ascension and the suffering that they will encounter as they advance the kingdom throughout for God of God throughout the known world. Now he's going to do this. He's going to disciple apprenticeship them in three ways. Three ways. These are not going to be on the PowerPoint, so just three ways. So listen. First, Jesus is going to show commitment and focus on his mission. Jesus is setting his face. He is not going to be delayed. He is not going to be distracted or denied that which he came to do. So what we're seeing here is, as, as disciples, we ourselves need to, to have a commitment and focus on the mission of God. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51 uh, to 12, chapter 13, the disciples are going to learn what it means to follow Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Uh, we have this thing where we just, oh, you just have to say a prayer, Right? The one time in your life, you just got to say, I believe in Jesus. He believes in me. That's all I needed. We were at a conference yesterday with the men. (laughs) And this gentleman was giving some of the world and Christian philosophies. And one of the ones that just made me to chuckle, you know, it's usually about you. What you hear from the pulpits and many times, unfortunately, from churches is that everything is about you, not about God. And we've understand from from our from the biblical perspective, it's not about you, but it's about God. We, We need to realize that. But one of the words that they say, one of the phrases the man says that is that Jesus has a snapshot of you. He has a picture of you in his wallet. That's a nice little phrase. Kind of makes me chuckle. Or maybe, he, well, now, nowadays, I guess we have to say that Jesus has a picture of you on his iPhone. Oh, but his would be a God phone, not an iPhone. Or an I am phone. I don't know. One of the things. But what is it saying? It's about you. And it's about you. It's about me. But you and I have to understand that, that, that that's not biblical. What we have to understand is Jesus knows what he needs to do. And he's calling us to something much greater. I love the phrase of of David. You heard the the greatest epitaph on a tombstone is that David served the purposes of God in his generation and then he died. That's the greatest thing that you and I could ever put on any headstone or be told of us at at, at a funeral or a memorial. I pray that's the words. Now that doesn't mean that David was perfect. And then he was always faithful, for we know David was not. David was a very flawed man, but yet he served the purposes of God in his generation. As you look here on the screen, Jesus had been teaching them, I have a mission that I must complete. Back in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, back in June, we saw this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. How would you like a mission like that? How like you get, you know, I was just watching last night, 9-11, and I was watching one video of the, uh, as, you, as many of you call the, uh, uh, the one plane that was going down, ready to go down into the, either the White House or the Capitol building, 
United Flight 93, there was two F-16s that were sent up into the air. But they were sent up so quickly that they did not have any weapons. They had no missiles. There was no way to take down the plane. All they had were some ammunition, some kind of bullets, bigger bullets than what you and I might have. But he says, all we can do is cripple that plane. But the problem is, is then that would get it too close to D.C. And so I watched an interview with the two pilots. It was a man and a woman. And the interview said, what were you prepared to do? She goes, we did not have any orders. All we knew is we could not let that building go down any closer. So what were you going to do? She goes, well, the captain, my pilot here, he was going to ram his plane into the front of the plane, and I was going to ram mine from the back. Were you given orders to do that? No. We just knew that we were told to get that plane down. Now, would you fly up doing that? Or think about those men and women who knew when they took that plane, a good chance they were not going to be able to control that plane. Talk about a mission and a focus. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. The hard-headed disciples had a hard time. He goes on in Luke 9, 44, let these words sink in your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They could not understand it. Not our Messiah. Not if you're here to bring in the favor of the Lord and the kingdom of God. Jesus was committed. Peter, James, and John had personally witnessed the transfiguration just a short time earlier back in Luke chapter 9, verse 30. If you're still there in Luke, in Luke 9, you can look at it, verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish where? At Jerusalem. Now let me ask, how many of you, as improbable this be, if someone came to you, grabbed your hand and says, you will die if you go to Bakersfield, It's so good to have Kat back with us. How many of you would then say, you know what? I am going to Bakersfield no matter what. Some of you say, I'm not doing that anyway. But the point is, is you're not going to, right? If you knew your destiny, we would avoid it at all costs. That's what we do. We avoid suffering. But Jesus embraces it. He welcomes it. He's looking forward to it. His face is set toward it. As I mentioned earlier, one event that's over, usually overlooked in this scenario of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is of Jesus' ascension that we read earlier in our scripture reading. The New American Commentary notes that the ascension marks the culmination of the Christ event. It embraces Jesus' conception, his birth, his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We open that up. Remember in our, in, our, in our opening prayer, our call to worship, is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's not there buried in a tomb, and he's not just resurrected, but he has ascended. And so Jesus, when he's thinking of, of the betrayal and the torture and the crucifixion, he's also thinking that I will be united with him seated at the right hand of God. 
That's the same thing that should cause us to, to embrace the suffering of a disciple. The commitment that you and I are also called to take up our, Christ, our cross, excuse me, deny and be willing to die. Because we too will be lifted up. Turn, if you would, quickly to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, I warned you about this in Sunday school. You may see Ephesians come up quite a bit because I'm reading that in my own personal study. Jesus' upcoming destiny, his divine appointment that we're seeing here in this passage is very near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Soon Jesus will destroy the works of Satan, amen, and accomplish the work of, of God in reconciling God's children through his sacrifice, the prince who slays the dragon and wins the girl. This is coming to a completion. And in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1, we read this. In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Speaking of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Great words and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we see that in Colossians happening. What you and I are seeing as we open Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we are seeing that the fullness of time is getting close at hand. And his commitment and focus is on that event. There's nothing in heaven or earth that will keep Jesus from his predetermined plan that Peter pronounces here, as you see on the monitor, in Acts chapter 4.26. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and also along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. What? They were all gathered around. All the characters were gathered right there in the center of sage. Why? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What God the Father knew would happen. What Jesus had uh, 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 obediently agreed to do in the Trinity. Jesus had a commitment and a focus to finish his mission. The second thing that we see, it's very important for us as disciples of Christ to understand, is that Jesus shows humility in rebuking his disciples and dealing with the Samaritans. Jesus shows humility. Ironically, Jesus had just rebuked them, the disciples, for arguing who was the greatest back in chapter 9, verse 46 of Luke. Luke had responded, or excuse me, Jesus responded to their argument of who was the greatest by saying in Luke 9, 48, if you're there, you can look. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is all, among you all is the, is the one who is great. He's trying to teach him humility. Quit, quit asking who's the greatest and who's the most strongest. I was followed up with their demand for Jesus to stop a man who was exercising demons, but he wasn't doing it, or he was doing it in the name of Jesus, but he was not part of their group. Again, Jesus rebuked them for their attitude. Remember that? 
Now here they are, ready to condemn a whole village for refusing to host Jesus. They had no compassion, no desire to know these people and understand them. Now we might agree with their assessment. Anyone who rejects Jesus deserves it. You might say, well, yeah, that's what the Bible says, right? Those who reject Christ will one day face a judgment. We do need to, to express that. That's a biblical truth. However, that's the day in the final judgment where they find themselves guilty and condemned by the holy judge and righteous judge. But that day is not today. That day was not then. That day is in the future. Jesus had already taught the disciples that he came to seek and to save, to to serve, to, to ransom, and to usher in the year of the favor of the Lord. He is sharing and wanting to express with them the gospel. It's not a time of condemnation, but revelation. The people of this village did not recognize, just like many today, maybe your family or friends, maybe a husband or a wife, they don't recognize that they're rejecting the very creator of the heaven and the earth. They're blinded. We need to understand that the Bible tells us that the God, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the mind. In the eyes of those that don't know Christ. They don't recognize the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of God's children. They just see someone who worships different than they do. And Jesus had every right. Jesus had every authority as the Son of God to call down fire on them as Elijah did. He could have, just as he could have called 10,000 angels, right? to save him from the cross, from the betrayal of friends. But instead, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples humility, compassion. Rejection, ridicule, and suffering, you and I need to understand this, is part and parcel of the life of a disciple of Christ. We will suffer in this world. Salvation, by the way, comes through suffering. We are to live as sojourners and exiles in this world. A world that's hostile to our faith and our way of life and our way of worship. Knowing that our citizenship is in heaven where our inheritance is being kept for us. And until that day, When Christ returns for his people or or by God's design, we are taken from this world early. We are to have the mind of Christ that is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. You'll see it here. Do nothing from selfish ambition. That was James and John. Selfish ambition and conceit. He says, instead, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. James and John could not do that. They just saw enemies of Christ. Many times you and I do that with our politicians, with cultural influencers, with people who work with us and, and make fun and ridicule of our faith and our church. Have this mind among yourselves, which, in Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul goes on in that passage to describe how Jesus humbled himself through his obedience to the Father's plan to ransom us 
from God's wrath by bearing our sins and imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. Let me take you, that's the message. When we say, how do I look on the interest of others? Does that mean that I compromise? That, that when they say, well, this is my truth, that we say, well, we accept it and affirm it and approve it? No. He says, then the, that's when we need to share the gospel, the reason of the hope that is within us. The fact that Christ came to bear our burden. You and I need to recognize that all of us are born in sin. And all of us, from, from our early days, are bearing the wrath of God. And that if we do not turn towards God and towards His Son, that we will face a, a judgeful, revengeful, avenging God. But yet He sent His Son to bear our penalties, to bear our sin. When Jesus set his face, he knew exactly what was waiting for him. Real quickly, take your Bibles and turn to, to Proverbs chapter 6. I saw this yesterday. I'm sorry. This is extra. I won't charge you for it, I promise. You get this for free. Proverbs chapter 6, when we talk about, Brandon and I were talking about this. This is a, a passage that uh, some men used in our men's tree. Chapter 6, then go to verse 16 of Proverbs when it says that Jesus was going to bear our sins, you and I need to understand what he's bearing. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just my anger, or maybe it's just the fact that I got mad because somebody turned me or, or, or you know, pulled in front of me, and, or just the, the little things of life, or those things are okay. But no, Jesus bore our sins, our wretched thoughts and actions and deeds. Jesus did this for you and I. And when it, we see that Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're seeing at this point, God is bearing his wrath. And, in, and we look and say Proverbs chapter 6. Look at this. Verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him. We, we learned this yesterday in our men's uh, conference. Look at these things that God hates. A haughty eye, a lying tongue a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. You can think of this anything from a terrorist to a man who, who's going to plan on cheating on his wife or to a young person that's looking to rebel and steal from his parents. Feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. God says these things are abomination to him. And at that time when Jesus was on the cross and the wrath of God, when Jesus bore our sins, he bore those seven things that are an abomination towards God. And you and I can find our minds, the way we think, our hearts, the things that we love, our affections, and our will, our choices, are all bound in those things that God hates. But yet in the same way, as Jesus bore the abominations of God for us, that God then took Jesus' righteousness, His goodness, and He placed it to us. You see, for anyone to get to heaven, it's not based on good works. We read that earlier. It's not based on anything that you and I can do. It's based on the works of Christ. So when he sees us, when we repent of our sin and we turn and put our trust in Christ, that God accepts Christ's work on our behalf. It's not because of us, lest any man should boast, 
but it's based on what Jesus did on that day. I pray today that if you're trusting on getting into heaven based on your good works or the heritage or the legacy of your family, that you would see that you've been lied to. No other way to put it. But the only way to stand in heaven and be accepted by God is because you've repented of your sin. You're trusting that God will accept the works of Christ on our behalf. And that should humble us. That should give us humility and a desire to stay on focus and to share that gospel with others. Don't work. You'll still come short. Don't trust in yourself. It will fail. I lost my place. You and I need to recognize that Jesus shows humility. He doesn't take it on the Samaritans. There's a scene number three. Jesus shows mercy and compassion to those who rejected him. He shows mercy and compassion on those who rejected him. Again, Jesus would have been righteous and just to burn down that village. And there are many instances in Scripture where God killed people for their sins and their rejection. The entire world during the days of Noah other than him and his family. Lot's wife for looking back at Sodom. Not to mention both Sodom and Gomorrah, the two towns. He killed the two sons of Judah for their disobedience. He killed uh, uh, many in the wilderness several times for their sin, as we saw in Leviticus or in, in, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Numbers, we read about how God killed the man who touched the Ark of the Covenant because he didn't want it to fall off an oxen cart onto the ground. God killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. So I say all that to say God has no problem with killing people and taking us down for His rejection or for rejecting Him. He has the power, he has the authority, and he is a righteous God. But not in this instance. Instead, he shows them mercy and compassion. And what is wonderful to understand is that God gives those Samaritans time to repent. Same way that he gives many of us time to repent. God doesn't always deliver instant justice. Sometimes God delays his justice and his punishment. Aren't you glad for that? What would it be, where would you and I be if God responded instantly to our rejection, to our rebellion and disobedience against his word? As Paul writes in Romans, that God's kindness, that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Later in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, Luke writes that Peter and John will journey to many villages in Samaria preaching the gospel. Did you hear that? Later, after Christ ascends to heaven, Peter and John are going to travel through Samaria preaching the gospel. Now, we're not told if they, if they went through that particular village. Wouldn't that may be amazing? I can almost imagine the joy in John and Peter's mind that Jesus prevented them from destroying those who had not yet heard the gospel. I believe that you and you and I reach heaven 
that we may very well meet some of those people who rejected Christ in that village this day, that day. But because of God's mercy and compassion, he gave them time to see him. For us today, I believe that we can learn to apply a few things from this passage, and here's where we're going to come near to an end. As you and I need to recognize that as disciples, we have much to learn in this life. A day of reckoning is coming for this world. God is going to take us either through death or through his return. And during that time, we need to make the most of our time. You and I are living out our last lectures now. We don't know when that time is ending, but we are in our last lectures now. So for you and I, as disciples, we must expect and accept rebuke. We need to learn to accept it. We need to expect it. The Bible tells us as Christians to rebuke one another, to be in season. Rebuking means not condemning, but it means trying to correct them, trying to bring back them in. The Bible tells us correct a brother, pray for each other, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, encourage one another. And we need to be in that business of, of accepting that and expecting it and sharing that and giving it to others. As disciples, we must uh, be humbly reminded that at one time we too rejected God and rejected Christ. So we should have the mind of Christ. As disciples, we must also give grace to those who reject our ministry, knowing that at time and time, people are going to shut the door to us. Friends are not going to want to hear us. Family just may ignore us. People may cancel us or take us off Facebook or whatnot. But we need to give them grace and compassion, giving them time also for the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. And fourthly, as disciples... We must be focused with the time that we have left here on earth. For you and I have been given a mission of God. It's found on the next verse, Matthew chapter 28. You'll see it here in verses 18 through 20. Familiar to you. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is the, there is the sum of our last lecture. Let us as disciples of Christ, let us as disciples of Christ, also be focused and humble and compassionate. For God has called us to finish the task set before us. Very head bowed and every eye closed. Our prayer is that God may make us sufficient for such things. I'm going to ask Randy to come on up, as well as our worship team. It's time for us to just take a moment to pause and consider what God's word has given to us. Just a simple passage of scripture with some simple instructions. But still, applicable for you and I to be involved, to recognize that we are disciples of Christ. We are to learn. We are to be involved. Would you take a moment just to pray and ask God, what is it that you want me to do? What is it that you want me to commit to? Have I been wasting my last lectures? Have I been giving the correct lectures? Have I been listening and growing from the last lectures. And let's respond to the Spirit's work that we may do what God has called us to do and serve God 
in our generation before that time that he brings us home and returns. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.